0: your bibles to the book of acts as we continue our series on that book acts is a story if you're not familiar with it of the early church and uh how god was moving in it it takes place from about um 34 33 or 34 a.d through to about um 62 or 63 a.d somewhere around that And we've been looking at it over the last little while. And we are looking at chapter 7 at the moment, which was a famous address given by the first Christian martyr, a man called Stephen, who was a Greek man who had become a follower of Jesus at some point and then was appointed to the early leadership of the church in Acts chapter 6 to help settle some of the disputes between the old-timers and the newcomers because they were arguing about who was being looked after well. But Stephen um, also had a firm and clear grasp of the um, Old Testament because he was what was called a Hellenized Jew. That meant that he came from Jewish stock, but he had a Greek name and he was probably brought up in Greek culture. And he discovered what it was to be both a Jew and a Greek. I guess in many of your contexts, if you are already a Christian, it would be what it means to be a Christian and Northern Irish, for example how you live with those two identities together. But Stephen is killed at the end of Acts chapter 7 at the beginning of Acts chapter 8 because he defends Jesus and he defends Jesus as the saviour, not just of the Jews, but of the world. We've been looking at his speech, one of the most important addresses in the New Testament over the last few weeks. And we're going to pick it up at Acts chapter 7, verse 44 and read to verse 50. This is Stephen speaking. Our ancestors had the tent of testimony in the wilderness as God directed when he spoke to Moses, ordering him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our ancestors. And it was there until the time of David. David. Who found favour with God and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the house of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. As we continue our brief exploration of Acts chapter 7, we come to a moment in this story where through Stephen, God reminds the people that are listening to him of what it means to be people of his presence in this story from verse 44 through to verse 50, Stephen, and you, you, many of you will know this, but not all of you will in the, in the New Testament, there were no verses. They were added 1,600 years later. In fact, there weren't even any spaces between the letters and the words. There's just a list of letters. So it's important to remember that when you read a story like this because it's not as if Stephen paused at the end of each verse this is one continuous story from Acts chapter seven, verse one, all the way to the end of the chapter, all the way to the end of his address, actually. But in this bit of what he is saying, he is telling the people that are listening to him, Jewish leaders, Jewish rulers, Jewish religious men, something that in the end is the, the red line for them that means that they will kill him. He's talking about two things, the tabernacle and the temple. Now, what were those two things and why do they matter and what relevance at all do they have to you and to me today in 21st century Northern Ireland? Well, the tabernacle was a tent. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 26 and following that God instructed the people or the Hebrew people to build as a place where they could worship him and that tabernacle was important it had three sections the very middle section of it was the holiest part of it then there was a, another part outside of it that was described as holy as well and then there was another part outside of it that was called, 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 kind of described as a gathering area And God instructed his leader, Moses, uh, to build this tabernacle, this tent, so that wherever they moved as the people of Israel, or the Hebrew people, they were to carry this tabernacle with them. And that was where they were to gather. That was where they were to perform acts of corporate worship. That was the space that reminded them of God's presence and God's promises, God's power and God's purposes. Hold on to those words. Presence, promises, power, and purposes. It wasn't as if God wasn't everywhere at the same time. The Bible makes that very clear. There isn't one square inch of the planet where God is not present. Christians don't believe that God was locked up in the tabernacle or that he was somehow locked up in the temple they recognize that God is everywhere. The Dutch Reformed theologian and one time Prime Minister Abraham Kuyper said 130 years ago now there is, no, there is not one square inch of this planet over which God has not already proclaimed in a very loud voice, Mine. Some of you were brought up in a Christian context where you were told that if you went to certain places, God wouldn't be there. Not true. There's nowhere that God is not on planet earth. Not one square inch of Belfast. Not one square inch of where I grew up or where you grew up. Not one place that you go to now. Not one action that you carry out. Not one thought. Not one bit of your life is hidden from God. You and I can convince ourselves that he doesn't see. Perhaps because it makes us feel better. But the reality is that Christian theology and Jewish theology teaches that God is everywhere. He is in all places, at all times, and is never absent. And yet, the Jewish people, as they had come out of slavery in Egypt, were instructed by God to build this tabernacle. And into the tabernacle was placed something that was a very important piece of religious furniture, if you like. It was called the Ark of the Covenant And into that was placed some things that symbolized God's presence, God's power, God's promises, and God's purpose to them. Inside of this wooden box that was overlaid with ornate carving and held on poles and carried carefully was placed um, two stones upon which God had written himself. They were the tablets of Sinai where God explained to the people of Israel how he wanted them to live. They were placed inside the box. A symbol of his word. A symbol of his presence and his promises. Placed inside the box. We're also told in different parts of the Old Testament that in that box or close to that box anyway also went manna. A miraculous material that was provided by God for the children of Israel as they wandered in the desert. Six days a week they got it. Every morning. It was like a white, snowflaky type substance. And they got enough every day for that day, apart from on the sixth day, when they got enough for two days, so that they would learn to trust God and rest in his presence. And they had to put some of that into or close to the Ark of the Covenant so that they could be reminded of God's provision, his promises, his purposes, his power, his provision. And we're also told at different parts of the Old Testament that a staff, a stick of wood was placed there that was Moses' oblique Aaron's staff, oblique God's staff. And that was a symbol of his rule, of his power and of his authority. And everywhere that the Jewish people went, that tabernacle went. We're told in Exodus chapter thirteen, for example, that when they were running from Egypt and getting trying to get to the promised land, they came to a place on the edge of the Red Sea, and God guards them there. He sets a cloud of fire before them, behind them by day, um, and a cloud of uh, a, a pillar of smoke by day, and a cloud of fire by night. And that becomes a symbol of God's presence, his power, his promises, and his purposes with his people. But it also separates them, protects them from the Egyptians when they attack them. And we're told that after they had crossed the Red Sea, and after they had built the tabernacle, that the presence of God, symbolized as a cloud or a fire, went with them. And they followed it by day, and it guarded them by night. The presence of God was their guiding star. The promises of God were their guiding principle. The power of God was their guiding safety and security. And the purposes of God were their guiding hope. And everywhere this tabernacle went, they went. Over the years from Moses, which was about 1440 B.C., All the way through to David, which was around 900 BC, 940 BC, something like that. 500 years, 450 years. It was this tabernacle that signified God's presence to them. Then, when David became king, he wanted to build a temple. He didn't get to do it. There's no example, by the way, there's no instruction in the Old Testament of God saying he wanted a temple. He permitted one. Doesn't mean he wanted one. David's son Solomon built that temple. And in one part of the Bible, the Old Testament, we're told this. It took him seven years to build that temple. It was so ornate and beautiful. And people read that story in 1 Chronicles and they say, that's amazing. 2 Chronicles. It's amazing. What a beautiful temple. The very next verse says it took him 13 years to build his own palace. Solomon wasn't entirely motivated by good motivation when he wanted to build a temple. He overlaid it with gold. He spent a great deal of money on it. He made it very ornate. God used it. God blessed it. God was present with it. Just as he blessed their desire to have a king, even though he he told them they didn't need one. But what happens in this story is that somehow the people of Israel begin to think that the tabernacle and the temple... Makes them better than everybody else. They misunderstand fundamentally what the presence of God was doing in them and for them. It was never about making them better than anybody else. It was never about saying that God hated the rest of the world and loved them. But somehow in their heads, they began to forget. Over hundreds of years, culturally, the reality that God was everywhere. And they began to talk of God only being in the tabernacle. God only being in the temple. That somehow God was there and not somewhere else. And these symbols, particularly the temple, became this powerful image to Israel of their superiority over the rest of the world. That they were better than the rest of the world. That's why when Stephen is presenting what he's saying here. He says something really profound and deeply important. He says to them in verse 48 and verse 49 and verse 50. God cannot or God does not dwell alone in structures. You can build the biggest temple and it's not big enough for God. God. You can have the most ornate furnishings. You can have the most remarkable building and it isn't enough for God. Verse 48, yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is this place of rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Next week, we will see how uh, David... I beg your pardon, how Stephen goes on to make a point that seals his fate. He says to these people whose whole identity is tied up in this temple. You have got this wrong. So they kill him. What does that say to us here today? Well, let me first of all talk to those of you that are Christians for a moment. If you are a Christian... I want to say this and and please hear carefully what I've said because this is rather intricate theology but it's important and it'll only take a few minutes be careful that you don't think that God dwells here in this building and that this is the only place that you can meet with him that's not true it's not true be careful That you don't think that the church can bring you salvation. That's a doctrine for another part of the church. It's not a doctrine that we would hold to. There's only one person that can bring salvation to you. And it's Jesus Christ. The church cannot save you. Going to church doesn't rescue you. It doesn't save you. Going to church isn't enough. The presence of God is here. He manifests his presence in powerful ways. He evidences presence with his people in wonderful ways. But be careful that you don't assume that this is the only place that God's presence dwells. That's a dangerous doctrine to believe. Because if you believe it, you end up doing several things. First of all, you think that all you have to do is get people to come to church and they'll become Christians. That's not true. You do know that, right? There are millions of people who go to church every week, but they're not followers of Jesus because they haven't encountered God yet. They're Christianized, they're churched, but they're not converted. Be careful that in your theology or in your thinking, you don't begin to believe that church can save you. Church can't save you. No denomination can save you. No preacher can save you. No pastor can save you. No um, structure can save you. No declaration of um, doctrinal purity can save you. You will not be admitted into the presence of God simply because you pass a doctrinal exam. The presence of God does rest on his people when we gather. Does evidence itself in powerful ways. But don't make this the center of all of your Christian living. It's very careful not to do that. Secondly, for those of you that are Christians, and you, some of you will be alarmed at what I'm about to say, don't be alarmed. The Bible can't save you either. I read the Bible, I'm a Christian. Reading the Bible doesn't make you a Christian any more than reading a book makes you a book, or going to the library makes you a book. Reading the book won't rescue you. There are millions of people that read the book. But they haven't encountered the presence of God. I worship, that'll save me. No, it won't. I've signed the right statement of faith. That'll save me. No, it won't. There's only one thing that will rescue us. There's only one thing that can hold us in the grace of God. And that is the mercy of God shown to us through Jesus Christ. He has brought God to us. He reveals God in us. In Jesus, we see God's power, God's purposes, God's presence. We see God's grace and mercy demonstrated to us. I think one of the great blights of European Christianity, of British Christianity, of Northern Irish Christianity, and of Irish Christianity is churchiness. What do you mean I'm not a Christian? I go to church. Do you know why that is? When you hear me saying, are you a Christian? What you're you're actually hearing in your head or in your soul is, are you good? I'm not asking you if you're good. I'm not asking you if you go to church. That's not what a Christian is. The presence of God can be encountered when we worship. The presence of God can be encountered as we read the Bible. The presence of God is mediated toward us when we gather together. But none of these things can save you. They're not what will keep you. There's only one thing that can keep you, and that's the grace of God shown to us through Jesus Christ. You're churchy when you're more worried about what people will think if you miss the meeting than what God might say to you when you're in it. I have maybe some of you are in this situation, folk that say, you know, um, uh, I never miss a meeting. That doesn't mean you're close to God. You can be sitting beside somebody that never misses a meeting today and the minute the meeting ends, what they want to do is pull apart the preachers and the people around you and all they ever do is criticize and moan. I'm sure none of of us have ever done that, have we? It's possible when you get this theology mixed up, to never miss a prayer meeting, never miss a Bible study, never miss a Sunday morning, never miss a Sunday night, have your name on a church, Rhoda, attend, worship, fellowship, give, support, engage, and lead, and be far from God. Because the presence of God is not just about all of those things. And I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, that the presence of God is... This powerful, powerful, powerful reality that is mediated to us through Jesus Christ. Through his cross, his resurrection, and the giving of his spirit. That's good news, even though you look as if it's bad news. It's good news because this is what it means. No matter where you go, God's presence goes with you. No matter where you work, God's presence is there. You have know a place that you're thinking, if I go in tomorrow, how many people could have killed before breakfast? God is there. There is nowhere that you can go that God is not. In the darkest moment of your life, in the most isolated and alone and frightened moment of your life, the presence of God goes with you. There is nowhere that you can go that is totally dark if you are a Christian because you carry the light of God in you and with you. That means that you're never in the dark. You are never alone. You are never abandoned. You never need to be uh, so consumed by fear that you think God has abandoned you and walked away. He made a promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. So much of our theology, our espoused spoken convictions about what we believe God to be like ends up sounding like God is here and not there. Let me remind you, God is there and God is here. It's not a question of chasing his presence here because you won't have him there. It's about remembering that God goes with us wherever we go and that he is with us here when we worship. Why then meet Malcolm? What is it about gathering together? When we gather together, we remind ourselves that God is with us. We tell the stories of God's grace we are put ourselves into a place where we can encounter his grace more. We become more open to what he might want to say amongst us or do amongst us. We allow the guard to go down a little bit. This is a place of encounter, of encouragement, of exhortation, of being transformed. But not because God isn't somewhere else. God is also there. So we meet to inspire, encourage one another, to be taught, to break bread, to worship, to pray, to have fellowship. But when we go, we go with the full awareness that God's presence goes with us. What of those people that aren't able to get to church week in, week out because of illness? Are they missing out in the gathering? Yes. Sometimes because they can't do anything but miss out. But God's presence is with them where they are. Sustaining them and calling them and holding them and nourishing them and helping them. I think sometimes pastors and preachers become anxious about this type of theology because they're afraid that people will hear this and say, oh, that means I don't need to go to church. That's not what I said. But if the only reason you come to church is because you're afraid of what people will think, it's not the best reason in the world. It's still not a bad one but it's not the best one. We gather together not out of force, not out of fear, not because you have a pastor that's sitting here with a wee electronic diary in his head or uh, register in his head like a schoolmaster looking and thinking, oh, absent without permission. Although many of you will see me on a Sunday morning and a Sunday night, you would be wondering what I'm doing if you're part of our church. I normally stand somewhere about here about halfway through the second or third song and I'll turn. You'll say, I'm never going back to that church. That look stares at me. <laughs> and I just take a look around like this. What am I doing in that moment? A register, yes. But not a register because I'm making sure that you're all present and correct and got a clean tie on. I'm looking to see who might need a bit of help or love or support. Because that's what a shepherd does. And I'm looking and thinking, oh, um, they're not here this week. I must just make sure they're okay. And I'll look up across the balcony as well. I'll think, oh, they're not around. Oh, they weren't around last week either. I wonder if they're okay. I'll just make sure everything's all right and that they haven't fallen down a drain somewhere or their life hasn't fallen apart and they haven't told anybody. I miss you when you're not here. But I'm not one of these pastors that stands with a rod and beats the living daylights out of people to get them to church. I'm more interested in your healthy relationship with Jesus than I am in you never missing a meeting and pleasing me. The presence of God goes with you. When you get to work in the morning, when you stand at a graveside this week, when you go to a hospital appointment with your son, when you're given bad news, when you're given good news, when you get a promotion, when you get a demotion, when you have to sign a death certificate, God's presence is right in that room. And I'm not willing to sacrifice that by creating the idea that God's presence is here and not there. Because actually this promise is too important. But here's the third thing for those of us that are believers. Be careful that you don't end up chasing something on the other side of the world. Be careful that we don't sing songs or pray prayers that make it sound like God isn't here. And what we have to do is go somewhere else to find him. There's a new theology emerging in the church which is a dangerous theology that gives you the impression that somehow God's presence here with us isn't enough. That his presence needs to kind of... um, We haven't got enough of him. (laughs) Theologically, that's not correct. It isn't that we don't have enough of God. It's that God doesn't have enough of us. Now... If I hear of God moving in rain, I'm going. If I hear of him breaking out in revival power in um, California, I'm going eventually to see what he's doing. I'd like him to do that somewhere nice so they could have a little vacation at the same time. I have no objection whatsoever to seeking where God is moving and seeing what he's doing. Learning from it being encountered by that, changed and transformed by it. I'll go to the ends of the earth if I hear God is moving. But what I'm not doing is going there because he's not here. What I'm not doing is chasing somebody else's leadership or theology or something. I'm going to encounter God, the God who is there and the God who is here. We need to remember that because otherwise we end up Developing a theology where God is present with us here But he's not present with us there Or there's somewhere else that we need to be Instead of where we are If you can't encounter God here It's going to be difficult to encounter him anywhere How strongly is this God present here today? How real is his presence? As real as it is in heaven itself And this is where the theology of what Stephen says here is so explosively challenging. And it's why they kill him. You see, Stephen says to these people, You have made, you have defined yourselves as better than everybody else because of God's presence. As if He wants to bless you and not anybody else. You've turned the presence of God into your possession. And God will not let you do that. He cannot be contained in buildings built with human hands. We have seen God moving in our church family here in remarkable ways in the last 18 months or so. We don't own his presence, folks. We're not entitled to anything. He is moving out of sovereign grace for us. People are traveling from all over Ireland. They're joining from all over the world. Thousands and thousands and thousands of them every week to hear, experience and see what God is doing. They're doing a bit of the traveling that I've talked about just a few moments ago. Never let that go to our heads. Never think that we are special, that we're better than anybody else, that we deserve this. We don't. God is at work amongst us. But God should get the glory for that. God should get the thanks for that. God should get the praise for that. And what about you if you're not a Christian watching online or here? The remarkable thing about this is that God offers his presence to anyone who will respond to him. From Gary in the back left corner to Adam on the front right corner. That might have been the wrong way around, forgive me if it was. God's presence is available to us. The only way that we enter that presence is through Jesus Christ. You don't need to be part of the Donald Elam to carry God's presence with you. You don't need to have signed up to the Presbyterian articles of faith or the Anglican articles of faith. You just need to know Jesus. You need to experience his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. And one of the things that I delight in about Christian faith and can never fully understand, but I'm so grateful for it, is that once you are in God's family, he loves you with the same intensity as he loves everybody in his family. Think about that for a moment. If you were to allow God a space in your life today, then he will be to you everything that you need. And he will love you with the same intensity as he loves anybody else. Go back with me for a moment to this idea of God's presence, the temple, the tabernacle, and what he might want to do amongst us now. Those of you that are part of our church family will have heard me say this before. But in the Bible and in, Greek, in the Greek language, there are three words for temple. The temple that Stephen is talking about here was destroyed in AD 70 by the Roman authorities, it was absolutely destroyed. The bottom of it is still visible as the great Western wall. The rest of it's gone. There's a mosque on it actually now. But there is a temple in this room when we gather together where God's presence lives and dwells. Back to this idea of the tabernacle. God was everywhere, but also present in the tabernacle in a very particular way. God's presence is everywhere. But when we gather in his name, he evidences himself in particular ways. That's what we miss when we choose not to worship together. The possibility of an encounter with him. But there's more than that. You see, Paul in the New Testament says twice in a letter that he wrote to the Corinthians that we are God's temple first time he says it, he says it to a gathered people like this. It's read from the letter. The second time, he's talking about you as an individual. And he says to individual believers, you are God's temple. You are the place where his presence dwells. The three words that are used for temple in Greek describe a precinct, a building, or the very center, the holiest part of the temple. The only word that Paul uses in the New Testament to describe God's people as a temple or you as a temple is the word that means the holiest place of all, the naos, N-A-O-S. And I know some of you have heard this before, but I want you to look at me for a minute. If you are a Christian, there is nowhere in the universe holier than the space within you where God dwells. Heaven itself isn't holier than that. The Ark of the Covenant space is not holier than that. The center of the tabernacle space is not holier than that. In every Christian's life, there is a space where God dwells in holiness and power and presence. You are defined by his power. By his presence, by his promises, and by his purpose. So when you face darkness, his light shines because he's present with you. When you face uncertainty, he is present with you to guide you and help you. When you are confused, he is there. And there is nowhere on planet earth or heaven that will be holier than that space now Or in eternity. Let that sink in. For those of us that are caught in sin. Thinking that God doesn't see what we are doing or thinking. He sees. He knows. He is present. Always. That can either frighten you or it can lift you. Depending on how you respond to God. If you're running away from Him, if you're trying to hide from Him, that becomes a frightening thing. If you're running toward Him, that becomes a powerful drawing thing. So, to all of us this morning, Christians and non Christians, are you running away from the presence of God? or are you running to it because the only place to be fully alive the only sphere to be truly human and fully free is in the presence of almighty God nowhere else is as good